This is Karen Griffin introducing the Space to Be podcast on people, performance, leadership, and love. Conversations with leaders, practitioners, experts, and authors about the world of work in the 21st century. I interviewed Dr. Sally Denham Vaughan in July 22 for Podcast 12 with the title Relational Change. And to date, it's been our most popular podcast, receiving the most downloads. I'm delighted, therefore, to be able to speak with Sally again today. Sally has over 25 years of experience as an executive coach, organizational consultant, international trainer and facilitator, and supervisor. She's a chartered coaching psychologist and RAPS registered supervisor with a coaching speciality. She's also got a background in clinical psychology and Gestalt psychotherapy, and has a doctorate which focuses on organizational development, leadership, and Gestalt approaches. She's the co founder of the business Relational Change. Welcome, Sally. Thank you, Karen. So, shall we start by connecting and checking in a little? Um, how's your summer been? Well, it's it's been fantastic. I mean, in some ways, I, you know, I didn't go abroad at all this year, and uh, I was feeling a little, um, let's say, mealy mouthed about that. And uh, I'd had a, a lot of expensive things on, so I, we were we were camping. Yes. I have to say that I had a couple of colleagues. One came back from Rhodes who had been, you know, um, caught in the fires there. And that was really tricky and upsetting. And another one who got stuck in floods, mm. you know, and it, it did lead me to this sense of uh, maybe holidaying abroad is not what it was. So I've been reflecting on that. But great summer for me personally. So feeling very blessed. What about you? Um, well, I, I concur, actually. I, mean, I'm normally, I normally spend more time abroad than I did this year. I, I had a, a short week um, in July in, in Portugal where I did a health retreat. Marvellous. Yes. And then uh, I did have a bit of downtime locally, uh, exploring the local area, which I don't often get to time to do. Mm. So um, I had one week where I had nothing in the diary, which was a, a special treat. And it reminded me of how much we need space to to truly get refueled so yeah I love love the summer I'm I'm back to it now full of energy I often think those um spacious weeks take more discipline to organize and protect than actually many other forms of break so well done you thank you So during our prep conversation, we debated which change angle to focus on, given the felt August 23 context and landed on the inevitability of change and therefore necessitant. It might be mindsets or embodied attitudinal stances. And and we might need to explain a little bit more about what we mean by that. Before we delve into the questions, can you summarise for us why this topic is important for leaders, please? Yeah, well, when we had the prep conversation, Karen, I guess, you know, I just alluded in passing to my colleague who'd come back from Rhodes. But, um, you know, that was really present for me. And I'd been making the mistake, possibly, of watching too much news in my holiday. And I thought, okay, climate change is really upon us. You know, it's really hitting home. Um, Put that together with 
cost of living crisis, um, you know, which, as I said, I'd had a few expenses. So going abroad was not an option this year for me. Um, you know, there's post-Brexit changes to what holidaying actually means in different areas around the world. There's a war on, you know, and I think what came up really loud and clear during our conversation was that change is no longer something that leaders have to make happen. You know, I've I've been in the business, I guess, when, you know, we had a an idea that um, an organisation was ticking along, you know, business as usual. And I think really those moments have passed now and it requires a very different leadership because change is happening whether we like it or not. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's planned change is a completely different matter. So we'll we'll talk about that. But um, I think there is a radical change in mindset. And as you say, what I would call embodied attitudinal stance or how, how we genuinely approach leadership um, that's required in this current environment. Thank you. And a solid grounding for us before we begin. So I've prepared some questions, but we know that if it's often better for us to surrender ourselves to dialogue and go with the flow. So let's see where where we go. Let's okay. begin. So given that change is happening, whether we like it or not, and in your experience, where should leaders start with their change journey? Mm. Well, as I say, I mean, probably you and I have spent many sort of hours, months, years, sort of um, trying to aspire to where we want to be, you know, where we want the organisation to go, uh, future destinations, uh, whitewater rafting, you know, blue skies thinking. We've all been there, big, hairy, audacious goals. And um, I think at the moment, if I could say to leaders one thing, it would be to really look at what is going on now in your organisation. You know, put very simply, start where you are. And uh, a good metaphor for that might be, you know, the sat-nav. We have an idea of where we want to go, but unless we know where we're starting from, current location, then we can't possibly plan any route to get there. So that reality of current situation, current context, including the culture and the wider environment around us, I think it's something that many of us try to not attend to and keep focused on our goals and the contracted outcomes. So it's a very radical change, actually, to really take a good long look at what's going on in our business now. Yeah. So, And you've raised an important point there. Instead of starting with what are my goals that were perhaps set six, nine months ago, it's actually are these goals now still relevant Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, obviously, COVID was the big sort of overtaker where there was a sudden change and we had to pivot very quickly and respond. But I think we are being beleaguered, organisations I'm working with, by the number of um, possibly not quite crises, but urgent requirements of leadership response that are seen to take people away from what they should be doing, which is getting on with the planned change. And trying to, I guess, have conversations with people about responding to what is rather than what we think should be the case 
that that is a lot of current work at the moment yeah and in in to help leaders take that situational mm. stance yeah. on, on where they're at i know that you work with some really useful frames um, mm. are you happy to share some of those with us today yeah absolutely um, well, Marianne Shidiak and I, you know, when we started creating relational change, as you say, our business, we spent a long time thinking we wanted something very accessible. You know, we are Gestalt organizational specialists, but we didn't want people to have to worry about what does Gestalt mean. So we tried to come up with a framework that could encapsulate the key aspects of what we were about, which is a holistic approach to organizational development and focuses on three lenses. As you say, one is the situation. The other is who we're with, which we call others. And the third is self or the individuals involved. So that actually gives us a nice acronym of SOS, which is you know, a global sort of cry for help, yeah. which I think many leaders are feeling now. Um, And it's also a reminder that leadership isn't something we should be trying to do alone. You know, um, I was involved a number of years ago now in a project uh, called No More the Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there really is something here about how can we reach out for supports, you know, both intrapsychically in ourselves, in our relationships and in our context and culture that will support us in in leading. So that's our SOS framework. Love it. I have to say, having been on one of your courses, um, Sally, I, I love the SOS model and, you know, with, with your um, permission, I've been using it with some clients mm. and without exception, they've all said it's a brilliant place to start mm. and, and mm. a very empowering tool when you're, when you're feeling a bit overwhelmed of, oh, I've got this change. I'm not sure where I'm up to with it. It's, I'm feeling stuck to start yeah. with that SOS model. It is very grounding. Yeah. Great. Good. Um, You've also talked uh, a little bit about earlier around, you know, uh, the need to urgently respond versus carrying on with business as usual. Mm. Um, And uh, which is, you know, very much any senior leader in the business or even middle middle managers often get involved in in those sort of crises as well. Mm. Um, it, It takes a lot of effort doesn't it to be constantly managing these shifting agendas, Mm. stress that, arrives because of the Mm. latest urgency Mm. Um, and the energy that needs to be uh, projected by all leaders to keep these various agendas afloat is huge. Um, What about the idea that sometimes you can actually operate a different lever? And I'm I'm referring here to your will and grace model, Mm. which um, again, really useful to be aware of when when doing change and living change is that there is another way it it doesn't always have to involve pushing and striving sometimes we can let things catch up with us would you mind giving us a bit of a a insight into that and perhaps where it came from Mm. well well, will and grace roughly speaking it's it's not a million miles away from the sos model So classically, um, we sort of planned change based on an idea of of where we wanted to go. So there was a, a, 
we call it an ecological model, not because there's anything bad with it or wrong with it. We have to have aspirations and we have to have some plans and sense of direction. You know, at a bare minimum, we have to be able to differentiate helpful actions from unhelpful. So those questions are always around us. Um, the issue with ecological or will-based change is it starts with a mindset. It starts with a cognition. Cognition about where we want to go. And grace, really, as you say, is the idea of surrendering or and or responding to what is going on. And with, with that model, we start at the other end of the SOS continuum, in a way. We start with the current situation. And <clears throat> rather than being drawn away from our plans to a crisis, which is often how this is framed in an organisation, I tend to try and get leaders to think about it as a call for action that is coming from the wider situational context. You know, so we call this an ecological model where you're responding to the system pressures as they are emerging in the current moment rather than your projected ideas of what you need to do today. And although this sounds small, one of the sort of assessments that we sort of do when we enter an organisation is how much of a leader's behaviour is to do with agenda setting, planning, um, vision creation, strategy, and how much is to do with responding to calls for action from the current context. Yeah. And classically, leaders would spend a lot of time on the first, which we call will-based, which is the push strategies where they're going to drive change through an organization, but very little time really listening to the calls for action from the current context. If anything, those might be suppressed and or ignored um, and seen as deviations. And, and what we want leaders to do really is be a bit more aware, a bit more responsive to what is actually going on in your organization. So important to say that will and grace or ecological versus ecological change strategies, we don't want them to be a polarity. We don't want people to say, oh, you know, I used to plan everything and now I'm just going to go with the flow. It's really about having both response capabilities in your toolkit. Yeah. And in your experience of working with leaders, what have you noticed about the usage patterns of those different approaches. Yeah. Um, definitely people are responding more to systemic pressures. So I think there is a real sense that I have to get out there a bit more. I have to be proactive in terms of listening to what's going on in the organisation. And, um, you know, of course, even Lean started with people who were sensing you know, in a very careful way, what's happening on the shop floor and reporting that back. Um, I think there's there's now an idea that how I develop that awareness, how I listen, how I enter dialogue with the, the organisation is part, is much more likely to be part of a leader's equipment in a way. So what are the important conversations? What are the important stories and narratives coming up in the organisation? And then making a call about how much attention should senior management be giving to that 
versus the strategic development plans, which we've all been charged with. And I guess there are still some differences that I see, depending on size of organisation, core purpose of organisation, public sector organisation versus private sector organisation. You know, there, there are some very broad differences and stereotypes that um, I might observe. So particularly public sector, you know, classically very focused on targets, yes. performance, numbers, data capture. Um, so less able really to listen, you know, and I think that is definitely changing, but it's it's a slow one to turn around. Agreed. So, I mean, I think systemically in society, we're faced with a lot of change as well. It's not even just leaders, is it? You know, individuals in society, everything you do every day is changing really in in some shape. Um, And I think in our prep talk, we talked about the need to face uncomfortable truths Mm. before you can move forward with anything. Mm. I mean, in recent weeks, we've uh, we've heard about that sensitive case concerning Lucy Letby and mm. the baby deaths. Mm. Um, and, you know, how much change is required in that system so that is never repeated. You know, it's, mm. it's heart-wrenching, really, yeah. for those that are involved in it, working it, in it every day, and for those who have suffered as a result of it. Um and I know you've got some background, haven't you, in that sector? In in health sector, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, given you know that, obviously, we don't we're not close to it, and we probably ought not to spend too much time thinking about it. But you know, and and there was another case locally here in Dorset where um you know it's now on BBC iPlayer as a, a young girl called Gaya Pope died at nineteen following um some tragic experiences and it was found that she was let down by the system over 50 mm-hmm. times in, in that process so there are two huge organ two or three or four huge organizations here with two big cases fairly recent cases um where the leaders there are having to look at change presumably um mm. in our experiences as change practitioners what gets in the way of people wanting to face the uncomfortable truths mm. well i mean you've you've mentioned a case there where i guess you know the reality of what was happening or at least what the court decided was happening um is somewhat unbelievable you know and um i think there's a human reaction to no, that couldn't be. That couldn't be the case. You know, if I remember working in um, mental health settings, you know, the idea that somebody would kill themselves or kill their dog or, you know, you, something in us recoils, I think, if that's not part of our experience. And yet, you know, we have to somehow think, um, what are what are the indicators, the early signs that things are starting to go wrong. The difficulty, I think, Karen, when when these are framed as systemic failures is those early signs are very, very common in those systems. Mm. Uh, um, I remember being asked to talk about um, suicide, suicide prevention. You know, often um, there, there is a very thorough inquiry into an unexpected death. 
you know, there will be a root cause analysis, there will be a deep dive into what what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what as a practitioner, I guess, what is so difficult is differentiating the one case that is going to end very, very badly from the number of cases that are sort of false positives. Yeah. And, you know, governance processes are designed to help and support us make good choices around this, as is risk assessment processes. I think one of the things that, you know, as I've listened to various cases over the years comes up is there is often a felt sense, you know, a gut feeling that something's not quite right that is raised by somebody. Now, you know, I these days I call that a relational governance mm-hmm. process. You know, there's no evidence. Nothing can be proved. When we're colleagues in a team, we're not the police. We can't investigate our colleagues. Yeah. Um, you know, on the other hand, what do we do with this felt sense that clearly – you mentioned the Lucy Letby case. Clearly, there was a felt sense by the clinicians that all is not well here. But what is the data? You know, and and if we're looking for hard evidential data points all the time to support our gut feeling, we're probably not going to have them. And that's where I think, you know, um, creating environments where people are able to talk, to dialogue, to express those views without being um potentially disciplined for bullying or you know it's a very very fine line for leaders to talk I don't think to walk I don't think there's an easy solution it's highly complex um but certainly sort of crossing fingers hoping looking the other way and thinking "Hmm, nothing's happened yet you know obviously isn't going to get us very far so so those relational governance processes I think are coming in more and more in terms of what what is a good relational context, team context for us in which we can have difficult conversations sooner rather than later? Great answer. Thank you, Sally. I'm loving the term relational governance process. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, it is all about the environment. We need to create trusted environments, as you say, where people can have dialogue, safely mm-hmm. express their felt sense perhaps Mm. without data Mm. without um any negative repercussion interesting chat so we didn't want this to be too long today i just Um, i I just absolutely wanted us to connect again and give an opportunity to share some more of your wisdom with our listeners um and uh, you know we've heard some really useful tips here today which start where you're at you know the use of the SOS model you know thinking about will versus grace in terms of your own presence and how you show up mm-hmm. um, the eco versus the ego logical um, ways of, of thinking about change um, and and now we're, we're starting to talk about relational governance and how the felt sense is becoming more and more important particularly mm-hmm. where perhaps the risk is really high yeah yeah um and i'm also aware that one of your wise messages is is very much around uh how you break the word down responsibility <laughs> um and <laughs> we, we talked a bit about this didn't we so um you know we, we've we've titled this uh session the inevitability of change mm. and 
and I know your view is leaders need to build responsibility in the team to be able to respond to the change. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Mm. Well, well, it's an interesting play on words and obviously it's not mine. The difference between responsibility, you know, which is something that I think we often with classic governance want to build, um, is a sense of being responsible to responsibility is our ability to respond to current contexts. And that's much more in the relational sphere um, to do with awareness, observations of micro behaviors, as you say, <clears throat> building a sense of faith and trust in each other as colleagues. You know, I was um, quoted recently as saying that I believe that in the future, all coaching will be team coaching, <clears throat> will be contextual coaching. Now, whether whether that is the case or whether we still want, you know, to go away in our sort of coach-coachy pairs and work on specific behaviours, we will see. But I think it's becoming clear that how a coachee behaves in an individual session with a coach is not necessarily the best indicator of what they might do in the context. That's not because they're faking with their coach. It's not because they are, um, you know, intending to be any different or taking their eye off their ball with their team it's because different contexts give us different ranges in how we will behave what's called forward Mm. so you know when we are looking at our ability to respond to things it really is a different skill set that I would say to leaders you know get out there have a look at what's going on what are the small behaviors that you can observe that indicate that people are listening and genuinely engaging with each other um, rather than perhaps focus solely on what they individually are able to do. You know, are there contexts where people come together for regular, reliable listening in sessions Mm -hmm. where they sort of check in with each other? how, How are we getting on as a team? How are we working together? Which is much more of a horizontal function sometimes in an organization than just the vertical, you know, performance review. So I would say, you know, setting up these small groups, um, public sector, we used to call them communities of practice, but, you know, groups of three to five, maybe where we meet regularly, we listen in, we, we hear other people's views of the stories of the organization. All of those are practices where we can develop this ability to respond to what is. Thank you. Sally, it's been uh, enriching as always. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure, Karen. Lovely to talk to you.